0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm editor in chief of EconView and your host today, Friday, July 7th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 46th episode of The Hale Report is Trita Parsi. We're going to discuss Iran, which yesterday was the hottest place on the planet. I've known Trita for many years. We first met when he was president of Nayak, the National Iranian American Council, and I served on the board. Welcome, Trita. It's been way too long.
1: It has been. It's great to be back with you.
0: You know, I th- I think I interviewed you back when Rouhani was uh, elected to his second term. So that would have been maybe 2017.
1: 2017, yes.
0: You're the only person I've interviewed twice on Econ View. So oh.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think reflecting um, your expertise and my and uh, as well as my interests in Iran. Indeed. Um, You know, just to share with our audience, for me, Iran is the stuff that dreams are made of. It's a place I lived as a child. I planned to return when I graduated after studying Persian at University of Chicago, but the Iran hostage crisis intervened and changed uh, U.S.-Iran relations forever. So just to let you know, I have a special connection to this beautiful country and to its amazing people. I have also long admired Trita Parsi, He's able to explain complex geopolitical situations with both clarity and nuance. He's not just an observer, but a participant in one of the key strategic relationships of our era. To tell you a little bit about Trita Parsi, he's currently Executive Vice President at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's an award-winning author of three books and an expert on US-Iranian relations, Iranian foreign policy, and the geopolitics of the Middle East. He was named by Washingtonian Magazine as one of the 25 most influential voices on foreign policy in Washington in both 2021 and 2022. He operates at the very heart of U.S.-Iran relationships with the ability to talk to both sides at the highest level of policymaking. He studied for his initial degrees in Sweden, and then he studied foreign policy at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, where he received his Ph.D. under Francis Fukuyama and Zbigniew Zizinski. In addition to his Ph.D., Parsi holds a master's degree in international relations from Uppsala University and a master's degree in economics from the Stockholm School of Economics. He has been published widely, and you've probably seen him in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, and on broadcast television as well. He's fluent in Persian, English, and Swedish. But to begin, as our listeners know, I always ask my guests about the path they took along the way to what they're doing today. Trita, your journey is really quite amazing. You were born in Iran but you moved with your family at the age of four, I believe, to Sweden. Your father was an outspoken academic who was jailed. He had the honor of being jailed both by the Shah and the Ayatollah. And I'm assuming that's why you moved to Sweden. And I'm assuming you came to the U.S. to study. Do you mind sharing some of your of your journey with us?
1: Yes. So, uh, first of all, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. As you mentioned, I was born in Iran Uh, and my family, we moved, uh, against our will, uh, at end of 1978 to Sweden. My father had been jailed twice by the government of the Shah. Uh, and the situation in the country was very, very uncertain and unstable. So he had this offer to continue his research at the university of Uppsala in the city of Uppsala in Sweden. So that's where we moved, uh, initially thinking that it was going to be a temporary post uh, until things calmed down. But then the revolution happened and the revolution turned increasingly undemocratic and, uh, violent. And, uh, also of course, uh, a couple of months later, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. Uh, my family's from the South of Iran, right where the invasion did occur. So we ended up getting stuck in, uh, in Sweden, uh, which, you know, had its tremendous benefits of course, as well. Uh, Uh, It was a great privilege being able to grow up in that country at that time. But this story is a little bit different from people who perhaps migrate because of economic reasons and are looking to start a new life elsewhere. Most of the Iranians that you see uh, having left Iran in the late 1970s or 1980s uh, did so not because they were yearning to leave the country, but because of the circumstances were such that uh, staying was not an option. So... Uh, I think it had a profound impact on myself and my brother because both of us ended up working in the field of uh, policymaking and international relations.
0: Because that affected your life directly and exactly. your family's life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Very, very understandable. And what do you feel about what's going on in your I was going to ask you this question later, but what do you feel about uh, what's going on in Europe today, the unrest that's happening there? How do you see that as somebody who is a resident there? So, I uh,
1: don't know enough about the circumstances in France to give you any particular um, informed opinion. But what I find rather disturbing in terms of the winds, the political winds that have been blowing in Europe for some time now, uh, which oftentimes is seen as a direct consequence of increased migration rather than being seen as a direct consequence of extensive neoliberal economic uh, reforms. I can tell you in Sweden, which was a, uh, you know, a profound uh, welfare state, uh, which has been completely dismantled at this point, Sweden right now is, has one of the worst performing economies uh, in Europe. It has an income uh, uh, distribution inequality that is now higher than that of Russia. It had a school reform that was done about, what is it now, 15 or so years ago, that, you know, decentralized and privatized schools beyond what had happened in Hungary and Chile. And it has completely destroyed that school system. Uh, it is, Sweden is no longer performing particularly well on any of these international tests. And, and all of this ultimately is going to lead to all kinds of societal problems and Sweden is suffering very much from that right now. It's not at the stage of what we see in France these last couple of days, unfortunately, with the uh, tremendous uh, violence, destruction, and but also police violence that we've seen there. But it, it feels very, um, it, it feels unlikely that any of these countries are gonna be able to escape some of this if there aren't any profound policy rethinking taking place. An added dimension, and this is perhaps a little bit more specific to Sweden, is also, you know, there's this very significant change that has happened there with a country that had 200 years of um, uh, uh, neutrality and alliance freedom, as it was called in Swedish, to now having rushed into NATO membership.
0: NATO, right. It's so yeah. surprising to me.
1: Without a real debate about the issue. And unlike the Finns, who of course have experience in direct warfare with the with the Russians, um, who also were neutral but shifted as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but they at least had a vote in the parliament. The Swedes did not. The Swedes did not have a referendum, did not have a vote in the parliament, essentially it was a secret ballot in the ruling party at the time, which was the Social Democrats. So um, it, it's a profound change that has done, without any real democratic anchoring of it. And and when I first saw that, I thought it was problematic. What I see now, which I think may be relevant to your readers as well, is that Sweden has not just shifted from being one of the countries that has a a well-deserved reputation of being a major force for peace, diplomacy, negotiations, international institutions. It's now shifted to be not only one of the most hawkish countries in Europe when it comes to... The war in Ukraine, which is perhaps understandable, but the part that is not understandable to me is that Sweden has emerged as being the most hawkish country on China in Europe.
0: The home of the Nobel Prize Prize.
1: Yes. Let, let me just give you one quick piece of statistic. The Germans came out with their national security defense document about two weeks ago. It mentions uh, climate 71 times, mentions China six times. The Swedish report came out, was published a week later. It mentions climate 53 times. It mentions China 317.
0: Wow. It's uh, Well, I noticed when you said, I was privileged to live in Sweden at that time.
1: At that time, yes. That time, was very deliberate. Right.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so what you're saying is the country has been completely transformed into something we wouldn't recognize. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm.
1: transforming to something that is difficult to recognize. And it may be too difficult for people who are living there to necessarily to see all the changes. Uh, for someone who hasn't lived there for 20 years now and who can watch it from far away, I may be able to see things that they can't and vice versa. But let me add one other thing on that report. The Germans refer to China as a competitor as a rival, but also as an unavoidable partner.
0: Mm-hmm. The business community, especially. Yeah,
1: yeah. climate change, pandemics, etc. The Swedish report, which mentions it 317 times, only refers to China as a threat. Hmm. And looking at previous reports, there's none of this. I mean, it, This is a, a dramatic change that has taken place, which I suspect is going to, give ground for very serious societal problems down the road, because this is just not well anchored in the population, I think. Uh, and it's going to have significant consequences, Sweden, on the international scene as well.
0: Hmm. Do you think that the, uh, the war in Ukraine was an accelerant in this process?
1: Oh, it, it certainly was. And I think there's, there's part of you know, some of these shifters that's quite understandable. But at the same time, Sweden retained a position of neutrality throughout the entire Cold War when its security situation was far more threatened than what it is right now. You know, perhaps during the first couple of days of Russia's illegal invasion, some of that panic could be understandable. But it took only about a week to realize that the Russians cannot even take Kiev. So how are they going to take Sweden? They're just going to walk through Poland? You know, so it's difficult to see that the security environment certainly has deteriorated, but to have deteriorated to the point to necessitate these type of changes, I just don't see the uh, justification for it. And and incidentally, the Swedish report also mentions that China does not pose a direct military threat to Sweden, yet it's mentioned 317 times as a threat. (laughs)
0: Well, you ha- it's you always wonder because his history and policymaking sometimes gets down to a single person if there is a, is if there's a personality there that is is driving that, or if it's something else. Well, we'll come back to Europe, and I want to ask you about uh, someone we both know, John Mersheimer and his thoughts about that and about sanctions. But uh, one of the things that you wrote just recently really piqued my my interest. and um, I think it was in foreign policy, and you wrote rumors are abounding that after ten months of almost no diplomatic activity, the United States and Iran are close to reaching an informal agreement that will prevent a further escalation between the two. It's not a renewal of the 2015 agreement. Um, we're and then I've heard that it's it's not going on. Is there hope, Trita, for for something? to happen to de-escalate things between the U.S. and Iran? Do you see signs of hope right now?
1: There's some signs of hope, but there's also uh, a lot of problems remaining. But it's also important to understand that this such, this, you know, an informal agreement would end up being the absolute minimum that the two sides could do. I mean, it's, it's nowhere near a renewal of the agreement. It's not even a freeze for freeze agreement. It's a Uh, agreement to freeze any further escalation, but they're not freezing other activities. And even that may turn out to be too difficult. And the root of all of this comes down to not only Trump leaving the JCPOA, the joint plan of action between the US, the P5 plus one and Iran, but also Biden's failure to get back in right away. The Biden administration chose a very problematic strategy they could have just, through executive order, re-entered that agreement, just as he did on day one with the Paris Agreement, uh, with WHO. Instead, they chose to renegotiate and negotiate ba- a path back into the agreement, uh, ex- you know, explicitly using Trump's sanctions as leverage, hoping to get a longer and stronger deal. And that just completely poisoned the atmosphere. After that, the Iranians have committed numerous mistakes, including being the, uh, the ones that essentially walked away from a deal back in August of last year, a deal that the Iranians now want to revive, that uh, a package that the Iranians want to revive, which the US and the Europeans are no longer interested in. So, so without a doubt, there's plenty of mistakes and problems and at times even flat out sabotage from the Iranian side. But I would say that the original sin here from the Biden administration side, is that they just chose the wrong strategy from the outset instead of just going back in. And without a doubt, there are challenges that would have needed to be addressed. The Iranians had extended some of their activities. But can we really say that it would have been more difficult for the United States to negotiate a resolution to those issues from inside the agreement rather than from the outside? I think we would have been in a much better position. In fact, I do also believe that if the Biden administration had gone back in right away, there is a decent likelihood that uh, Ibrahim Raisi would not be the president of Iran today and that the reformists and and centrists would have been able to continue uh, um, uh, to govern and not be thrown out of government in the manner that has happened. Not because the elections are entirely free or fair, they're absolutely not. In fact, they were quite unfair in this last round, but because it would have made it more difficult for the hardliners to cheat the way that they did.
0: Well, you know, it's a direct parallel with U.S.-China policy and the expectations that people had when President Biden was elected. And they thought that this would be uh, a new era and that the Trump, you know, sanctioned, the Trump uh, tariffs would be rolled back. And But however, you know, it's now very clear that it's, It's uh, Trump 2.0 for China. And what you're telling me is it's really Trump 2.0, Biden for Iran as well. And that's surprising.
1: Yeah. And it's Trump 2.0 on Cuba as well. There you go. That to me is actually the biggest surprise. Because if there's Mm. one issue that really does not have much of a political cost, it's not as if the Democrats are likely to take Florida again, um, uh, particularly if DeSantis is running. But there... Biden decided to let all of the reversals of Trump, everything that Obama had achieved in opening up to Cuba, uh, Trump reversed all of that and Biden has not cared to touch any of that. So unfortunately on so many of these different issues, the core of the policy, at least the result of the policy has ended up being Trump 2.0 with a different face, with a different rhetoric but the essence of it does not seem to differ that much.
0: You know, my feeling when I go to Washington is that there is a very similar atmosphere to the time right before we invaded Iraq. Is a kind of a feeling of war fever, it, do you think that the neocons, whether they call themselves Democrats or Republicans, are back in charge? Is that what's happened? I'm trying to understand this phenomenon, which really surprised me.
1: I think part of the problem is to actually think that these policies are driven by the neocons. Okay. Without a doubt, the neocons have been driving a lot of very, very hawkish policies. But, you know... Yes, the Iraq war was designed by the neocons, but it was also supported by many of the Democrats, including the current president. Um, I think the real issue and the real divide is between those who insist that the United States should retain a position of unipolarity, meaning that the U.S. should be the world hegemon, uh, and those such as John Mersheimer and other restrainers who don't believe that that is feasible, or perhaps not even desirable, and that we have to make adjustments of seeing how can we coexist with other great powers in the future, and and who also recognize that at the end of the day, when we had no checks and balances on our power, we actually really did not behave particularly responsibly, and we inflicted a tremendous amount of damage on ourselves. Monica Tufts, who was up at um, uh, up in Boston, who's also one of our Uh, non-resident fellows at the Quincy Institute had a, a study that came out last year. It was really fascinating. They were looking at all cases of American military interventions since 1776 and identified that a quarter of them, 25% came after the end of the Cold War. So when the United States was in its safest position, did not have any major threats against it, did not have any major, uh, certainly no superpower competitor. Instead of pursuing a more peaceful foreign policy, we ended up becoming more interventionist, starting more wars, including some of these endless wars. And um, it's difficult to see how that ultimately served the US. And and you know so much about China. I don't recall anyone predicting that the moment of multipolarity would come this soon. It's come this soon because of our problems, our own self afflicted wounds. And that's where you don't have a difference between the neocons and some of the liberal interventionists. They all still sign on to the idea that unless the United States is the world's hegemon, the unipolar power, we will have chaos in the world and the US will be unsafe. It's a premise that I fundamentally disagree with. I I think it's been proven wrong as well. But they all sign up to that. Now, some of them, like the neocons, are a little bit more hawkish. They're a little bit more blatant in how they present it. They're a little bit more distrusting of international institutions. And on the other side, there are others who, they still kind of like the UN, but more as an instrument to actually exercise American unipolarity. But none of them are questioning the unipolarity. And as long as that is the case, we are going to see these type of hawkish policies. So for instance, there isn't any difference, it seems to me, between the Trump view and the, the Biden view that either we dominate China or China dominates us. The idea that actually neither of those propositions are going to work and we need to find a way of some form of coexistence, we're never going to be able to endlessly uh, contain China and dominate it, nor are they going to be able to do that with the United States. We have to begin a process of renegotiating the rules of the road uh, on, on this issue and recognize that um, there's plenty of benefits that also comes with multipolarity. That's the dividing line in my view, not whether you're I a see. democratic hawk or a, a neocon.
0: Okay, I think. And,
1: and then just one one additional data point. Keep in mind, the war in Iraq, in essence, started in 1998 under Clinton, when Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act and made regime change in Iraq official U.S. policy. After that, it was just a question of time when the spark would come for some form of a confrontation.
0: I think that this foreign policy uh, with this constant goal of regime change, you know, that we think if we got rid of Putin, Russia would be solved and so forth. In spite of the fact, and you know what happened in Iran um, particularly, we always think that that's going to um produce um, a new government that will be sympathetic to us. And I can't think of a single case in which it did not produce a government that was less sympathetic to us throughout the world. Um, I'm I'm just not sure why people still subscribe to, to that view.
1: You're absolutely right on that. And I think Lindsay O'Rourke's research on this, also in our resident field with Quincy, is really fascinating, showing that in all of these different cases of regime change, even when regime change is successful, after about two, three years, the very same policies that we objected to tend to come back because either geopolitical forces will compel the new regime to pursue similar policies, or that you know more pliant leader will end up being overthrown because of them being seen as serving the interests of the u s rather than serving the interests of the country. Itself, so uh, it, it is. Um, it's not even a short-term solution. Beyond it being morally questionable.
0: Well, um, talking about somebody who's made a comeback, you're an expert in Iran. That uh, you wrote your PhD thesis on relationship between Iran and Israel. Now Netanyahu is back, and um, I read something you wrote that was quite amusing. And you gave Netanyahu full credit for the JCPOA, that he was in fact, the godfather of it. I, I'd love for you to explain that. I thought that was really funny and, and true at the same time.
1: I don't know if I gave him full credit, but I certainly wanted to give him some credit.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: no, so look, what happened back in 2010 to 2012, was that Netanyahu had been pushing and pushing and pushing for more sanctions. But the point with the sanctions was to show that the sanctions don't work and then force the United States towards taking military action and constantly dangle the threat that Israel itself may take military action against Iran's nuclear facilities, which would lead to a scenario in which the U.S. would get dragged into the war and the U.S. was very worried about that scenario. Now, if... Netanyahu had not pursued this policy of escalation in order to force Obama's hand. There is, I think, a rather significant likelihood that Obama may have done exactly what other presidents have done on North Korea, just kick the can down the road. It's not a solution to the situation, but it's also not a hot crisis. And you just keep, let it go on like this. So Netanyahu... His miscalculation was that he thought that by forcing Obama to take action, he thought that Obama would end up taking military action, but instead it forced Obama to double down on trying to find a diplomatic solution precisely because Obama knew very well that there was no military solution on the nuclear side. And he knew very well that he was elected on a platform of ending these stupid wars. And having started another far greater war, then the Iraq war in the Middle East would not go down particularly well uh, with the voters or with his legacy. And this was a major miscalculation by Netanyahu. Uh, we could have easily have ended up in a scenario in which Obama would have just kicked down the, can down the road as he did on North Korea, for instance. The other big miscalculation Netanyahu did is that he kept on opposing the JCPOA, which actually gave proponents of the JCPOA inside Iran cover. In one of my interviews with the Iranian foreign minister, uh, I asked him about this and he chuckled and he said, you know, if Netanyahu had come out and hugged the JCPOA, we would have been finished (laughs) because the hardliners in Iran would have said, you know, this is a complete sellout. This is something that is done uh, to please the Israelis. This is what the Israelis want. And it would have made it politically impossible for them to continue negotiations. But Netanyahu never understood Iran, never probably cared to understand Iran. And as a result, just doubled down on something that actually gave the Iranian negotiating team and the moderates there who wanted the deal more and more cover to be able to pursue the the JCPOA.
0: So Trita, you yourself were intimately involved in the negotiations for the JCPOA. And you have a book, Losing an Enemy, that talks about that and You know, at at one point, you know, you were meeting with the Obama officials at the beginning of the week and then with the Iranian officials at the end of the week. Can you share some of of the highlights of, of that experience? Because I don't think there's anybody who quite had the position you did at that time. And I wonder if it would have happened had you not been there
1: you're giving me way more credit (laughs) because I I, I wasn't involved in the negotiations, but I was advising the Obama administration and I did have access to both sides. There were plenty of people who probably had better access to one side or the other. I don't know if anyone had the combination I had. And I was attending the uh, most round of the talks, not in the negotiating room, but as an analyst that was serving the media Uh, And that gave me the opportunity to talk to the negotiators from all sides in between the talks. In fact, I ended up getting a very generous uh, amount of time of the Iranian negotiators, Zarif in particular. And the Iranians, and, and that was happening because whenever a new proposal was put on the table and the U.S. needed to come and react to it, they had to go and you know, of course, get instructions from the White House. And it oftentimes took quite a bit of time, which frustrated the Iranians, but it meant that they had a lot of downtime. And that downtime was partly used by me interviewing them and doing the research for the book. Later on, we all found out that the reason for this was because the Obama administration was so meticulous. They had created a a mock version of the Iranian nuclear site. And every proposal that was put together, uh, this was done in one of the nuclear labs. Every proposal that was put on the table, the American side replicated it in physically to be able to see would it give the Iranians some unknown, undue ability to cheat or do something like that. So the, the Obama administration deeply involved the nuclear scientists to always test these things. And that's why it took so long for them to get back to the Iranians with an answer and instructions from Washington on what the negotiators could say yes to or no to. Uh, And that benefited me because it ended up allowing me to spend a lot of time interviewing the various negotiators from different countries while I was there.
0: You know, Zarif seems a particularly interesting individual to me. And I wonder if he were president of Iran, you know, how things would go. what What do you think of him?
1: I think he is one of uh, the smartest diplomats that I've come across and I think uh, without naming any names when I was interviewing later on Obama administration officials of who which diplomat or negotiator made the most impression on you we were most impressed by his name often came up and in fact uh, rather senior person from the White House at one point when the announcement of the political framework agreement was made, was contemplating flying in from Washington to, I think we were in Lausanne at the time, Lausanne or Vienna, uh, just to be able to get a glimpse of Zarif. Really? Because they had obviously been negotiating from afar. I mean, this is not a member of the negotiating team, but one of the political folks that was instructed. But it tells you something about the fascination that had been created on both sides vis-a-vis each other. This was a very intimate negotiation. But um, I have worked in the Security Council. I've seen many of the foreign ministers and UN ambassadors. I would definitely say the Zarif is one of the most brilliant ones that I've ever come across. And it's, It's unusual to have that combination of someone who on the one hand has the political skills and can negotiate, but also at the same time has a very um, complex and deep conceptual understanding of global issues, not just regional, not just bilateral, but I can see that the big picture, the 20,000 feet picture uh, of what's the, you know, global trends, et cetera. It's a very unusual combination. I personally do think that hardliners in Iran were deeply worried that he would run for office, that he would run for president. And they did everything successfully, unfortunately, to destroy his name and make sure that he neither wanted to or nor had the ability to be able to stand um, as a candidate in the elections. I don't know for certain if he wanted to himself, but they were worried enough of the risk that he would, that they went to great lengths for the last year in particular before the elections to eliminate him politically.
0: Hmm. I just met him once at Council on Foreign Relations meeting and, you know, he has some star power. I I can understand, you know, their fear. Um, You know, Trita, one of the questions I get asked um, very often by people maybe hoping to make an investment in Iran in the future, you know, who are in our audience, is, is there any hope for Iran to change fundamentally? And where does that hope, if, if leaders like Zarif are not able to come to the fore, where, where could that, uh, will you and I be able to go back to Iran, you know, someday? Do you, is this a reasonable thought within our lifetimes? Or are we at some kind of, are we in purgatory of some kind? in this relationship and it's not going to change for a long, long time. How do you personally feel about that?
1: I've probably not been this pessimistic about the future of Iran for the last 20 years, even during the uh, Ahmadinejad years. I have a very hard time being optimistic right now. I think the events of the last year with the massive protests and young Iranian women showing tremendous courage, going out, protesting, has given them some limited social freedoms. It's not been any change in the laws, but at least tactically, the regime has backed down. But I think it's come at the expense of the regime really hardening its position and its grip on power uh, and left a lot of people very disillusioned and um, resigned towards the chances of being able to bring about change. I mean, these protests were themselves a manifestation of the frustration of the people feeling that there no longer seems to be an internal path that is not revolution for change. In the past, there was a confidence and a belief that through reform, a better Iran could be achieved, more open, reconciled with the West, et cetera, et cetera. I still believe that that absolutely was possible. Uh, I don't believe that it was inevitable for it to fail by any stretch of the imagination. If Trump had not pulled out of the JCPOA, we would be in a very different position right now. I think in Washington and the United States, there's not as sufficient appreciation of what happened when Trump first left and when Biden didn't go back. Because the reformist theory of change essentially had been if Iran manages to make up with the United States, it will help resolve so many of Iran's other problems economically, et cetera. It was critical to be able to find a reconciliation with the West, which is what did happen through the JCPOA. When Trump pulls out, it's a huge blow to it. I mean, Iran's economy was growing more than six, seven percent. We saw uh, a significant increase in female employment. Uh, I think... um, two out of three new jobs that were created after the JCPOA actually went to women. Uh, There was a lot of things that showed tremendous promise and a strengthening of the Iranian middle class. Trump pulls out, all of this is reversed. The economy contracts more than 16, 17% over the course of two years. Hope is gone because Europe is not stepping up to fill the American gap. But then there was still this belief that, yeah, but it's Trump. He's an aberration. You know, it was a uh, historical accident that he becomes president. So it's not likely going to, uh, you know, things are going to come back to normal once Biden or another Democrat comes to power. But then Biden comes in and he doesn't go back into the agreement. And instead, as I mentioned earlier, he wants to renegotiate and talks about a longer and stronger deal. What that did is that it killed the legitimacy of the argument of the reformist and the centrist. And it vindicated the argument of the hardliners who had said, okay, we'll go along with this JCPOA, but mark our words, the United States is going to betray it. Because now, with Biden not going back in, guess what? It's no longer Trump that is the aberration. It's Obama that is the aberration. Trump and Biden is part of the normalcy of not you know, being willing to find some sort of modus of Andy with Obama. It was Obama, the only black American president uh, raised outside of the country, all of these different things that made him a very, very different and unique president. He was the aberration. And that meant that in the eyes of a lot of people, even if they weren't going towards their conservatives, the conservative argument had been vindicated. And faith that the reformists either had the strength or a theory of change that was viable enough to be able to bring about change no longer was there. So you saw in the uh, 2021 elections, um, first of all, they hardly allowed any name recognized reformists to run. Um, But also we saw that about 20 million of the people who went and voted for Rouhani only four years earlier stayed home. They didn't vote for the conservatives or the reformers. They just stayed on. They boycotted the elections. The election participation was less than 47%, which is very low. Iran's presidential elections participation rate tends to be between 70 and even up to 85%. It was lower than 47%. So, and part of that was because the hardliners were saying, see, we told you, we were right. You can't trust the US. And more importantly, you put all of your eggs in the American basket. You had no plan B in case the U.S. would do this. And Iran is now suffering economically, politically, because of your naivete. You didn't have a plan B.
0: Is there anything, is there a role for the Iranian diaspora, which is a very powerful group of people, um, a very contentious group, from based on my experience, with a wide variety of, of opinions. But recently there's been, you know, the the photo with, Richard Branson and Reza Palavi, who, you know, all of that. Is there, and so people think that there is some hope that the monarchy could return. Could you speak to that hope?
1: There's some in the diaspora who over the course of these events, because I mean, many in the diaspora who were on the harder line, the hawkish side, were also hoping that reform would fail because they saw reform leading to the survival of the Islamic Republic. So they wanted it to fail. Their enemies were not the hardliners in Iran. Their enemies were the reformists. They needed to eliminate and discredit them in order to get Iran to become as hawkish, as reprehensible, as unacceptable as possible to force the West to choose a strategy of regime change that would then lend support to elements in the diaspora who were also pushing for that. So from their standpoint, this is exactly what they're hoping for. That's why they were supporting Trump's maximum pressure strategy. But we saw what that led to. Yeah, more than 500 people killed by the regime, but the regime is still there in power. And these diaspora figures who came together for a couple of months and showed some degree of unity, although they could not agree on a platform except opposing the regime. uh, After three months, they're spending most of their time attacking each other and fighting each other rather than fighting the regime. And, uh, so you saw, you know, some people who were uh, activists against uh, hijab, etc., coming together with Reza Pahlavi, but now unfortunately it's, it's truly embarrassing and it's embarrassing to the point that it's actually angering a lot of ordinary people inside of Iran. We're like, we're actually the ones facing repression. <laughs> you're out there in freedom and you're spending your time embarrassing yourselves and the cause. And I, and I have no doubt in my mind that the regime in Iran has at least tried to plant people in those circles in order to cause this type of infighting. This was one of the main strategies of the Shah when he was fighting the opposition, uh, in which he particularly planted people in leftist circles to cause the left to constantly do be embroiled in infighting. But in this specific case, I don't think they needed to, because the elements that rose up in the diaspora were themselves largely very undemocratic, including the the monarchists. They were never people who really believed in in, uh, uh, compromise. So the likelihood that they would have been able to sustain that platform was highly questionable in the first place. I never thought that they would only last three months. I thought at least they would have a year, but they couldn't even keep it three months without starting fighting each other. So, uh, and I think it's, um, I think one thing that happened that I think really show that the vulnerability of the monarchist movement is when Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, normalize their relations through the help of China. Right, I was gonna ask you about
0: that. Mm -hmm.
1: Rather immediately you saw that the reporting from the Iran international TV station, which is a Saudi funded and managed TV station that has become extremely successful in getting an, uh, viewership inside of Iran and to you know, serve the purpose of the Saudis in the sense of being an, uh, 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 an opposition TV station that was very active in fueling the protests. The protests, I think, were completely legitimate and, and homegrown, but there was effort from the outside to also fuel it further and make it more violent, and Saudi- uh, Iran International was definitely part of that. Much of that changed as soon as the Saudis and the Iranians normalized their relations. <laughs> And that led Reza Pahlavi to also start attacking Iran International. But I also think, and this is speculative on my end, I don't have any evidence, that it also led to him going to Israel. Because he made that trip to Israel, which I think was very discrediting to him. Uh, because, I mean, he was met at the airport by the uh, Israeli minister of intelligence uh, at a time when the Netanyahu government was trying to overturn democracy in Uh, at least the democracy that Jewish citizens of Israel are enjoying. So um, it it showed how dependent he is on external support and forces and how little his platform inside of the country is. If he truly had support uh, on a wide range of people inside the country, he would not be in a position he would not be so desperate to do such a thing as as traveling to Israel and seeking the support of the Israeli government or reaffirming its support uh, at, at such a moment. And I think, you know, there were small symbolic things that also show how little political sense he has. Iran is still a majority Muslim country. He went to the Wailing Wall, which is totally fine, but he did not make a visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Symbolically, I mean- what I that,
0: heard a lot about that, yeah. Yeah,
1: it, it was completely discrediting of him. Not that he, I think he had much- credibility in the first place. But I think he did gain a bit of traction with the protest and he squandered it very efficiently.
0: So, but back in Iran, for citizens there, it's not just about political repression and the things we see, you know, that are quite dramatic on TV, but it's the quieter economic collapse, you know, inflation and devaluation, all of the things and education um, suffering, people not having jobs. The effects of the sanctions on health care and so forth. They're just, how long can the Iranian people deal with it? It's funny, in Russia, um, the Russian economy is actually performing better than Germany's the first half of this year, despite sanctions. But it to me, that points to a bigger concept, which is China and Russia working together so that there's another axis of economic power. And I'm assuming that Iran would take part in those flows. Do you think that's a way out for Iran? How do you look at that big picture?
1: That has been the preferred path of the hardliners in the first place. Because they had no faith that there is a way to reconcile with the West, Iran's option then remains China and, and Russia. And as you know, just in the last three days, Iran formally became a member of the Shanghai Conference.
0: Cooperation. Cooperation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: So uh, this is the path the Iranians have now taken, whether it will pay off to them or not remains to be seen. I still see U.S. sanctions uh, inhibiting the degree to which Iran can sell and buy and get investments from China. So it doesn't seem to me as if there's a, a completely clean escape route for the Iranians in that sense. Um, sanctions will remain a challenge for them. But I also ultimately don't think that it is particularly wise of the Iranians to to go in that direction in the sense of um, becoming completely part of that block and, and contributing to the block formation in the world, which ultimately I think will be very destabilizing. I think the Iranians would be better off if they actually did what the Saudis are doing right now. The Saudis have a uh, a very strong relationship with the U.S., however tense it now may be, but they're taking advantage of uh, new one freedom and are playing all sides. Uh, and most countries in the world will be in a position to, or a lot of countries in the world will be in a position to do that. Turkey has been doing that very efficiently. Um, the Iranians are are, are going to inhibit their own maneuverability by this, but they may simply have no choice because the doors to the West have more or less proven to be closed to them.
0: So, what is the danger that you see? What is the thing that you worry about in terms of Iran treated that you think people aren't thinking enough about? You've described a lot of the the texture of what's going on, but what's the overriding issue here? Well,
1: I think first of all, the fact that the political spectrum in Iran has shrunk considerably and moved so much to the right means that the movement towards greater openness and first steps towards democracy has been set back more than a generation. And I, and I find that deeply troubling because it's very sad to see how Iranians today can be talking about the Khatami years, when Mohammad Khatami was president as, as the good old days. The idea that they would now be looking back towards that as the, the golden era of some openness rather than Having been able to progress from the work that he was doing and the the changes that came there is is uh, quite uh, demoralizing, and you can sense that when talking to ordinary people. So I think there's a there's a significant loss of hope in the country. Now you add that to the very very significant problems the Iranians have. Many of them caused by themselves. Many of them caused by sanctions. But things from corruption and mismanagement and a country that will be hardest hit in the earliest phase of climate change. It means that Iran needs a lot of international cooperation, technology, et cetera, and a government that is far more accountable to the population than the current one is. Um, All countries seem to be too late to do the necessary things on climate change, but it's much, much worse with Iran and it's going to be hitting them harder and faster than most other countries. In fact, we're already seeing evidence of that.
0: So counterfactually, what could have been the path for Iran, you know, from the time of the Shah? Wouldn't Iran have been like the center of the Middle East had the all of these unfortunate events not occurred? Can't you imagine it as a completely different place than what it became?
1: Certainly. Um, I do think at the same time, if... There had not been a revolution. It's difficult to say if the country would have moved in, uh, if it wouldn't have moved in even more repressive direction um, uh, under the under monarchy. Under the monarchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it's 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 difficult. I mean, it, it is all counterfactuals, but. And the other thing is also, I mean, the Shah was about to die anyways, and his son who would have taken over would have been roughly 18. So even if it hadn't been a revolution then, it's not entirely clear whether that secession in and of itself would not have caused a major crisis that could have led to the collapse of the government. But I think if we look a little bit less far, less distant in history and just look at the last 20 or so years, I do absolutely think that there was a clear path. And the biggest hurdle of that path had been overcome, which was to actually get an agreement between the West and Iran. So many people in Washington were saying, well, you know, you can't have diplomacy with the Iranians because they they don't want to talk. Well, then once it was clear that they wanted to talk, it was like, well, it doesn't really matter because they're not going to be serious. Well, once they were serious, it was like, well, it doesn't matter because they will never sign a deal anyways. It would go against the pillars of the revolution. Well, once they signed and was like, well, it doesn't really matter because they were never going to live up to the end of the bargain. Well, it turns out that they did that as well. The hawks were systematically wrong about Iran. The only time they became right is when they themselves sabotaged the agreement through Trump's exit. And that's when things started to collapse. It was in, within our grasp. It certainly wasn't within our grasp. And I do think, I mean, just imagine this. During the negotiations, don't imagine, just remember this. During the negotiations, uh, Rouhani's brother was a member of the negotiating team. In the midst of the negotiations, Rouhani's mother passed away. And his brother was with the negotiating team. And they had to break when the news came. And the U.S. delegation with John Kerry, Wendy Sherman, and Rob Malley went to the Iranian hotel to pay their respects to Rouhani's brother and expressed her condolences. And pictures were taken when uh, John Kerry was embracing Rouhani's brother. There were moments of humanity between Iranians and Americans that we had not seen for 40 years that are unfortunately impossible to imagine today. But they were there. Just a couple of years ago, and we squandered it,
0: so it seems that the our leaders in the United States and the leaders in Iran um, are failing us in some way, and uh, you know it reminds me of the Conference of the birds. <laughs> you know, looking for C. Morgan, they're they're not finding them uh, too, but uh, Trita, can I ask you, how can our listeners follow you and read more? About your current thinking. We, we will certainly have links to all your books in the podcast and other writings, but how can they keep in touch with you?
1: They can go to uh, the Quincy Institute's website, which is quincy, Q U I N S T Y, I N S T, short for institution.org. They can go to my personal website, which is just myname.com, treataparsi.com, or they can find me on Twitter at tparsi. Uh, and they will find not only my own writings but also the writings of other uh, experts and scholars at the Quincy Institute.
0: We'll post links to the other uh, people who you who you mentioned. And thank you so much, Trita Parsi, for joining me today. My pleasure.